Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books Network. In this uh, series, we talk to previous winners of the Coleman Prize. Name in the honor of British business historian Donald Coleman, who lived from 1920 to 1995. This prize is awarded annually by the Association of Business Historians to recognize excellence in new research in Britain. It is open to doctoral dissertation in business history, broadly defined, either having a British subject or completed at a British university. All dissertations completed in the previous year of that of the price are eligible. Today we have Christopher Phillips, and a recipient of the Coleman Prize in 2016, with his dissertation entitled Managing Armageddon, Britain's Transport Experts and the, and the First World War, awarded by Leeds University, and published as Civilian Specialist at War, Britain's Transport Experts, and the First World War, which was published in April 2020 by the University of London Press as part of the New Historical Perspective series. Chris, thank you very much for being with us here today. Uh, thank you for the, uh, for the invitation. Really looking forward to the conversation. Chris, you've joined the Department of International Politics of Aberystwyth University in Wales in January 2019, having previously taught history at the University of Huddersfield and Leeds Trinity University. So, Chris, shall we start by you telling us about yourself and how you became an academic, please? Uh, yes, certainly. Uh, so I'm from Birmingham originally, and I took a few years out of education uh, after finishing school, just sort of really trying to decide what I wanted to do. I'd always been fascinated by the subject of history at, uh, at school, so I ended up taking uh, an undergraduate degree at the University of Birmingham in economic and social history really enjoyed that and stayed on to do a master's in british first world war studies at, at birmingham as well uh, and then managed to secure funding to do a phd at leeds which was uh, from 2011 to 2015 and i think it was really while i was uh, reading for the phd that i sort of really made the choice that i wanted to throw myself into trying to get a career in academia really enjoyed being in the classroom talking about the subject with students as well as obviously all of the uh, all of the, the sort of activities around doing research and, and writing books and articles and those sorts of things. And I was lucky enough to to get the job uh, at Aberystwyth in, in 2019. Uh, that is um, very interesting. And how did you uh, decide to go into the topic? Uh, I guess that, you know, some people have a very laser focused topic from the, even from their undergraduate uh, studies 
other people, you know, explore different things and have a conversation with their supervisors and and eventually uh, build into in into a topic. What what was the type of experience for you? I think there's there's a lot of things that drew me towards the the First World War and also towards sort of the the transport and logistics aspects of it uh, in particular. Um, on the sort of broader side, I think like a lot of people in in Britain, I sort of grew up with the shadow of the war sort of all around. So I'd walk past the local war memorial uh, on the way to school every morning, and the school that I went to had a really prominent war memorial um, sort of on the hall, in, in the hall as well. Um, so I've got those sort of memories growing up of, of being surrounded by the war. Uh, and there's a, a photograph in my um, grandparents' house, um, which has always stuck with me, uh, one that I actually own now, which was my great-grandfather, who was a pre-war regular soldier um, who was on the reserve list in 1914. So he was called up uh, at the outbreak of the war and he served all of the way through. Not a man that I ever had the opportunity to meet. He died in the in the 1950s. But I've always sort of wondered what was his experience like? What are the sorts of things that he saw? What are the sorts of things that he witnessed? Um, during the conflict. So that was really where that sort of broader interest in the war came from and was able to sort of study a couple of modules um, on the topic at, uh, at undergraduate level, which really sort of um, cemented my interest um, in the war as a whole. Um, but on the sort of the, the more particular side of transport and logistics, a couple of things that were really important. I think first and foremost, I was lucky enough to have the late Rob Thompson uh, as a dissertation supervisor, both at undergraduate and at master's level uh, and his passion his enthusiasm for anything that was transport and logistics and engineering uh, in the war that very much rubbed off on me in the, in, in a really big way um second i think the thing that sort of drew me into the topic that ultimately became the thesis in the book was this question that i sort of kept going back to the more and more that i read about the subject which was how on earth did they actually do it so you sort of see all these photographs from, say, the Battle of the Somme. You see thousands and thousands and thousands of empty shell cases have been piled up after they've been fired. And, and that's a really graphic, I think it's a really visual representation of the sort of colossal organisational challenge that is involved in fighting the modern war. And the more that you read into the subject, the more staggering all of that stuff uh, becomes, you know, you start reading the statistics about hundreds of thousands of tons of coal being shipped to France every year, of the hundreds of millions of, of pounds of bread being baked all of the time, the, the numbers of men and animals that need to be fed on a daily basis of half a million animals, two million men in the British Army by 1917, they need to be fed every single day. And of course, the volumes of ammunition that are being fired across the across the Western Front day after day after day. The scale of that is all just absolutely colossal. And these are all challenges that needed to be confronted. They needed to be solved in order to just keep the war machine, uh, keep the short war machine doing what it was supposed to do. And just coming back to those questions time and time again, that sort of led me into, into sort of seeing the, the, the input that the various British transport companies of the time we're having into those operations. And you start to see the influence of civilian ideas, civilian techniques, civilian technologies on the conduct of, of war. There, there is, there is a, an aspect that I wanted to explore with you regarding logistics and transport in during the war. And, and I'm going to make the question now, but I would like to 
for us to come back to it later on when when we deal with the dissertation and the research in in full. Um, but you know there there is this perception or this argument by by some people that the logistics during World War II were instrumental for the creation of certain nationals like Coca-Cola or uh, Caterpillar, which were um, big, you know, they, they, they build on that logistics. So it's, it, I think it will be interesting to, if you allow us, to reflect a little bit on the differences between these two and, and why during Second World War we, we have this impact on companies, but not, uh, or, or maybe in, in some others that we haven't explored during World War One. So um, before before we come back to to this topic, if you don't mind, let's let's talk about the Coleman Coleman Prize and what it meant for you to be a winner and personally and professionally. Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, it was obviously it was a great honor to to one be nominated for the prize and and then to be lucky enough to win it. Um, and I think that was a really massive confidence boost for me at the time um, because it was a time of life that for I'm certainly sure anybody who's just finished a, a PhD will know was taken up with lots of job applications and fellowship applications and funding applications the majority of which were ending up in in rejection emails so being nominated for the prize and then winning it I think certainly something that helped to, to just keep me persevering with with what I was doing for longer than I probably would have done if I hadn't been nominated um, for the prize. And I think just having it as a line on on the CV also, I think probably played a role in, in securing me the job that I was ultimately, I was lucky enough to, to get. And tell us a little bit about, you know, organizing the, you know, the, the session itself when, when, when you won, which probably you were very nervous and had a, you know, this combination of elation and, and nervousness at the same time. But then you, you, are given as a as a winner the the task of organizing next year. So what what how was this experience for you? Um, it was a fantastic experience uh, to judge the competition the, the the following year. I think the main thing that I took away from that was was the sheer breadth of research that's taking place in the field of business history, which was a real eye opener for me. Um, I think we had eight submissions in all that were were sort of long listed. And they covered everything from sort of hotels and marketing. Uh, there was one on the photography industry, which I remember. And there was also one on the arms industry in the UK. And I, I found all of them really fascinating to read in terms of the different approaches they took, the different kinds of materials they were working with. And I think the, the hardest decision that I've had to make as an academic was choosing the eventual winner because the standard was so incredibly, incredibly high. I think what it really sort of it told me was that business history is a very vibrant, it's a very diverse field. Um, the one thing which I do remember, which I thought was a shame at the time, and I think it's still a shame now, is that none of the candidates, and certainly none of those that were shortlisted, were employed in academic history departments at the time. Um, and I think that probably points to a sort of wider problem uh, in terms of perceptions of the field of business history within the wider disciplinary of history which as somebody who now works as a lecturer in the history of warfare, I think military history is, is challenged in similar ways by the wider history uh, discipline. And I think that's, I think that's a shame. I mean, how was it turning the experience of turning this award-winning dissertation into a monograph, looking for a publisher and, and negotiating that it, it having already contact with senior scholars through the, through the 
to the price help you in selecting the 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 publisher or was it more of something that you did on your own and you know the also the work of 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 rewriting the 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 um, um the document into a publishable um it was a difficult experience i think in terms of making that transition from from the thesis to the book uh, i had the proposal for the book rejected um, by a couple of publishers before uh, i discovered the new historical perspective series um through the university of london press uh, and i have to say i cannot recommend them enough as as a platform for any early career researcher who wants to get their book out there to the widest possible audience um, I found the whole team there to be an absolute pleasure to work with. They were supportive, they were encouraging throughout the process. Um, and they organized, after I'd completed the sort of draft of the manuscript, they organized a workshop with a couple of senior scholars in the field where that where they allowed me to talk through some of the sort of big ideas in the book. And that was incredibly helpful to just help me tease out some ideas that I think at the first draft stage, weren't necessarily as fully formed as they would be in the final book, and that was a really, a really important part of the of the transition for me, um, which I think probably helps me to, uh, in terms of the advice that I would give to anybody who's making that transition at the moment, um, is to really reflect upon what are the five or six really key points that you want to make. So not the dozens and dozens that come up over the course of each chapter, but the the five or six that are absolutely fundamental to understanding the story that you want to tell over the over the entirety of the book. And keeping those in mind all the way through the process is actually just going to help the reader to take away those messages. Uh, so taking a step back, not just focusing on all of those little intricate details that uh, that you're obsessed by over the course of writing the, the thesis, but looking at the wood rather than the trees, which is something that uh, that one of the scholars involved in that workshop told me to do. It is hard, but I think it's a really important thing to do, to take a step back and think what are those sort of five or six really broad points that come across from the entire work that you want readers to take away. And what are those five or six points that you wanted to take away from your own book? Um, that is a very good question. Um, I think the book is a consideration, I think, of the First World War as, as what I like to suggest as the first example of a conflict that is fought between highly industrialised societies. And what I mean by that is that these are societies that are able to manufacture huge quantities of goods and they're able to transport them from production centres all over the world to the various theatres of operation where, where the fighting uh, is happening. So that's what makes the First World War what it became, what everybody knows the First World War as, that sort of mechanised, industrialised slaughterhouse. And obviously that's where all these images of things like trench warfare that are absolutely ubiqu ubiquitous in the public understanding of the war come from. So if you say to certainly anybody in Britain the First World War, they will immediately start thinking about muddy trenches and things like this. But the First World War wasn't predestined to turn out like that. And so what I wanted to do with the book was to try and explain one of the reasons why it does turn out the way that it does. And that's because of the contributions that are made to the operations of the British Army by Britain's transport experts, so the civilian specialists that are the title of, of the book. I think what I wanted to do was really to take one aspect of the British war effort, so transportation, which is a really, really important, it's a crucial aspect 
of the British war effort and look at the influence that British civilian experts in that particular field had over the army's transport operations during the war. I think what I've argued in the book is that that influence was, it was far broader and it was certainly far deeper than has generally been understood up until now. Um, so just to sort of explain that a little bit further, it used to be sort of thought within sort of First World War circles that this connection between civilian experts and the army is something that doesn't really emerge until the, the middle of the war. And this is when David Lord George, who was the Secretary of State for War at the time after Lord Kitchener's death, he would then go on to become the Prime Minister. He made a concerted effort at that point to try and reduce the amount of power, the amount of influence that the army had over the direction of the war. So essentially he tried to uh, what's called civilianise the war effort. And as to the war, Lloyd George argued that what he did in 1916 in terms of bringing these civilian experts into the highest uh, decision-making levels of the war effort, he argued that that was absolutely pivotal in terms of ensuring that Britain was on the winning side. That's a really powerful argument because it wasn't one that could be contested by any of the senior soldiers of the time because they'd all died conveniently before Lloyd George published uh, British War Memoirs. So all of the things that he sort of suggests about there being this sort of out-of-touch, insular military elite and don't take any notice of the potential for support coming in from beyond the military, that really establishes itself firmly as one of the sort of dominant images of the First World War, of the lions led by donkeys, of these generals as the sort of callous, incompetent butchers who just preside over this senseless bloodbath where they're doing the same thing over and over and over again. And what I found as I was doing the research for PhD is that this argument that Lloyd George made just absolutely doesn't stack up. So what I discovered is that there is this long-standing relationship between the British transport industry, the British government, and also the British army. And those connections, they're not put in place in the middle of 1916. They're in place for decades before the First World War, and they're exploited all the way through the war in, in different ways and, and different methods that I sort of talk about in the book. And they played this really crucial role, I think, in terms of allowing the British Army to fight a, a material intensive, a sort of artillery-dominated form of warfare that was absolutely fundamental to the military victory. And therefore, are you proposing that some of these, let's call them narratives, some of these ideas, some of these stories that are coming from, from the... First World War in terms of the relationship and importance of the private sector in making a turn of the of of the war needs to be looked at in deeper and and more detail. And I'm thinking here not only in your case transport, but you know there are other similar stories. For example, with the introduction of cost accounting and the development of cost accounting during the war. And, and so what, what, what would be your, your reaction to, to this? I think you're absolutely 100% right. What my story, the story that I'm telling, is a tiny part of a much, much wider, uh, a much, much wider organizational effort. And you're absolutely right. Things like cost accounting, things like production uh, methods and, and different changes to, to those sorts of things, 
the introduction of all kinds of different methods of managing workforces. These are all things that are being experimented with within the army during the First World War. Some of them work, some of them don't. And the entire war really becomes this experiment in terms of the extent to which modern industry, modern industrial practices, modern industrial techniques and technologies can be applied to the processes that are necessary to win a war. Uh, I think the, the, the research that I've done, I hope is a starting point for other people who have other interests, not necessarily transportation, but in all of these other industrial areas to, to take another look at the First World War and look at the sorts of things that the army were doing. And what sort of um, archives are you using to be able to support this, this um, uh, hypothesis, this research question? This assertion. The, the the main source of archival material for the thesis in the book uh, is the, the the sort of collection of diaries and reports and memoranda and correspondence and all of these other things that are generated by the British Army itself during the during the war. Particularly the collection that's housed in in the War Office files in the National Archives at, at Kew. Those documents are very much the sort of starting point for the project. They're very much the backbone of everything from from the thesis through to the book. It's it's incredibly difficult to just really articulate the scope and the volume of information that the wartime army is producing. And you really have to sort of sit down and read through some of the diaries, some of the reports, just to understand the sort of breadth of subjects that are covered and the amount of different things that you know, the wartime army commanders needed to be on top of all of those intricate details that could have profound effects in terms of the sort of fighting power of, of, of the, of the war. So these are the, these are the best sort of real time information source in terms of all of those key problems that the army is facing and also the solutions that they're attempting to find, uh, over the course of the conflict as well. So a bibliography of, 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 of the book and the thesis crammed full of references to, to the war diaries of the key departments that I'm looking at. So they're post-war reports as well, in terms of when they were reflecting on things that had worked and things that hadn't. And also things like letters, telegrams that are flying um, across the English Channel to the War Office in London, all across the war. And of course, are flying all around France from various armies and corps and divisions as they're trying to sort of figure out solutions to all of these problems. So that was certainly the backbone. Um, those are uh, the, 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 the war diaries um, that the army's creating. On top of that, I was also able to look at some of the, the personal papers of the sort of key figures that are involved in sort of managing the army or managing these institutions at various points. Um, so we're really lucky that Sir Douglas Haig, who was the commander of the British army in France from December 1915 through to the end of the war, he leaves behind this really detailed, really insightful diary that's a really key record of all of his thoughts, all of the things that he's doing, which gives us a clearer understanding of problems that he's confronting, all of the challenges that are in front of the British Army, and also, crucially, all of the different stakeholders that he had to navigate his relationships with over the course of the war. So politicians from Britain and from other allied nations, the soldiers of other allied nations that he's working in coalition with, and also a lot of these experts who are coming into and offering their expertise to the army. Uh, so his papers are really, really important uh, in terms of sort of understanding what's happening at the very top end of the army. 
And I was also really lucky to be able to use the papers of Sir Guy Burnett, who was the uh, general manager of the Midland Railway. He was one of the civilian experts who was drafted into the War Office in, in late 1916. And his papers, which are in the Modern Records Centre at the University of Warwick, they are absolutely vital in terms of outlining what the problems uh, facing the army at that point were, and also in terms of how he and the other people involved was trying to sort of tease out what the solutions to those problems would be. And it's really, it's, it's fascinating to look at those papers and see the extent to which these civilian experts are drawing on their experience, they're drawing on their knowledge of private industry to suggest solutions and pathways forward for the army. And how was it that then that you could articulate this view that the relationship between the army and in, in terms of transport and, and the private sector had been there for years or decades, uh, as opposed to Lloyd George's argument that it was invented in 2016. Uh, so there are also number of, of interactions between the two groups that are happening um, before the war that are really, uh, really important and really useful to, 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 to sort of just bring that story through. And these are connections that really sort of stretch all the way back to, I think, the, the start of the railway industry in Britain. Um, so I think in the opening chapter of the book, I do a fairly broad sweep of things like the influence that military figures had over the railway industry in its early days. So you know, the, the army was really the only place before the 1820s where you had men who had experience of managing the workloads of lots and lots of other people who were not necessarily all based in the same place, a so railway industry the the you know that the 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 employment force is stretched over uh, a, a wide area as it is with uh, with an army so we see those sorts of connections developing um right at the very start in terms of former soldiers moving into jobs in the railway companies we also see in terms of the uh, the relationship between the railway industry and the royal engineers so the royal engineers have a really key role in the development of the railway industry in britain in terms of overseeing where railways are built and also overseeing uh, so things like the, the inspectorate of railways is something that is managed by the Royal Engineers. So there's that relationship which you can chart right from the very beginning of the railway industry. And as the railway industry grows, you can chart the relationship working in, in the other way as well. So you see the railway industry, senior figures within that will deliver guest lectures, particularly to the Royal Engineers, but also to senior soldiers at the Staff College. You'll see them writing um, reports, articles for military journals, or you'll see senior industry figures are producing sort of schemes for moving troops around Britain uh, in the event of an invasion. They're coming up with plans for moving troops around Britain from the 1860s onwards, or they're even providing officers with technical education. So the Midland Railway offered a course for officers to actually effectively work on the Midland Railway for six months to a year and learn everything about the operations of a railway before they would then be in charge of that sort of thing for the army as well. So you can see all of these connections building and developing in, in, in that sort of 80 years before the war breaks out. And let, let, let me go back to that earlier question that I made in terms of your thoughts of why this in in the first world war does not lead to this uh growth of large company why, why is it not leveraged by the private sector 
as it is the case of in, in the Second World War with companies like Coca-Cola. This is an aspect that I've done a huge amount of research on, um, but my initial sort of theory based upon sort of things that I have read, sort of work that I've looked at, is that there isn't really a great deal of appetite within certainly the railway industry in, in Britain to learn a great number of lessons from the war. Uh, there is an appetite to effectively get back to business as it was before the war as quickly as possible. So at the outbreak of the First World War, the government takes control of the British railways and they remain in control of the British railways and they effectively run the railways through something called the Railway Executive Committee for the entirety of the war. And the companies contribute to that and they, they, they make some fantastic and valuable contributions to talk about in the book. But I think there is certainly this expectation and I think there is certainly a very strong desire that they will get back to becoming privately owned, competitive uh, businesses as quickly as possible after the war. That doesn't last very long because in 1923, they're grouped into sort of regional uh, larger companies, but it certainly doesn't go any further than that. And I think that at its, in itself at the time was a bit of a compromise um, rather than going the, the whole hog and nationalizing as we see after the Second World War. So probably lack of and of entrepreneurial entrepreneurial vision might some of my colleagues might 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 say but let, let's leave it at that um if if you think uh, or, or let's let's see what as as the research progressed what sort of thing you you needed to on the one hand learn more about and secondly what do you think it was innovative or borrowed from other disciplines or, you know, that, that you think that you come up as that is a, a sale of a good PhD as yours, that ends up being not only a prize winner, but a, 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 a monograph. I think that, I mean, that's, I think the, the, the difficult question to answer there because it's, it's a, it's a very traditionally, and it's a very unapologetically history, um, thesis. Um, so I'm not sure that I really sort of did borrow anything from sort of other disciplines or or other methodologies in the work. It is a it's it's a history thesis, um, and I'm I'm not ashamed of that, and I'm quite pleased with the with the fact that it's it's a history thesis. It's a subject that uh, it's a subject that I enjoy. It's a subject that I I love and have a great passion for. Uh, it was a subject that I was quite happy to to, to write a dissertation on. Um, in terms of the sort of earlier question about things that I had to sort of learn more about um, as I progressed the research. Um, it was fascinating, I think, to, as somebody who came to this as a First World War historian, um, first and foremost, and came to it from the military side, it was fascinating to learn a great deal more about what British business looked like uh, in the period sort of surrounding the First World War and looking at the kinds of techniques, the kinds of technologies, the kinds of innovations that were being experimented within British industry, the sorts of things that were then harnessed and adapted um, by the British Army to sort of help navigate its way through the war. So there's a lot of really fascinating work um, by people like uh, Joanne Yates, um, Lisa Bud Freeman on things like data management and sort of systematic management movement and all of the work that, uh, that Joanne Yates has done around sort of information infrastructures and the way that knowledge is sort of gathered and processed and moved around an organisation. That I think was the, the the thing that I was most fascinated about learning about learning more about over the course of the project. Thank you. And at the same time, there are things that you have to leave out of the research 
not not everything can go into the monograph. What are the sort of things that if you had had space, if you had had time, you would have included or wanted to learn more about? I think in terms of con- uh, conversion from the thesis to the book, um, what I had to do, I think, was just consider in a bit more detail the implications of the work that the civilian experts that I'm talking about did in terms of how it affected, how it influenced events on on the battlefield. So there was a conscious effort that I made for the book to focus far more on the sort of operational side of the war than I had done in in the thesis. So probably just sort of um, reaching back to that last question, I probably had to chop out some of the material in the thesis that probably contributed to why it was awarded uh, a prize for business history in the first place. Um, so I'm sure certainly some of the listeners to the, to the podcast are interested in in things like the history of management studies, um, particularly in Britain will know. Lyndall Erwick served in the First World War and he drew a great deal of inspiration um, for his approach to management and management studies from the way in which he saw the army being organized, certainly by the time we get to the end of the war in, in 1918. And he spent a great deal of his career, I think as somebody who really emphasized the similarities between war on the one hand and business on the other in terms of the kinds of organizational challenges uh, that are involved in them. And one of the things that I think comes across from his work is, is this argument that the side that organized more effectively gave themselves a massive advantage, whether that's in terms of fighting a war or in terms of overseeing a successful business. And so with that in mind, I think there was a lot of material in the thesis about some of those managerial tools that the army's using to sort of coordinate its activities during the war or improve its performance during the war, uh, whether that's sort of borrowing ideas from Frederick Taylor and sort of scientific management movement, scientific management, uh, sorry, systematic management movement or scientific management movement, or if it's in the sort of widespread use of, sort of charts and graphs as these sort of visual aids, um, sort of visualizing performance figures, identifying weaknesses in the organization and its operations. Or if it's things like using task work to incentivize productivity among laborers, all of these things are being done by the, the army in the First World War. They're probably dealt with in a great, a great deal more in the thesis, which is still available to download um, from the University of Leeds uh, Library or from the British Library's ethos service. There's a lot more of that in the thesis than there is in the book. So I think that's probably the big thing that I had to sort of chop out when it came to so revising things for the monograph. And finally, Chris, what are you working on now? What is your next project? Um, at the moment, I'm really being sort of drawn towards, I think, two different topics. And I think both of these were sort of inspired a lot by the research that went into, into certainly civilian specialists that wore the book um, rather than the thesis. Um, so first of all, I am still fascinated by military logistics. Uh, and in particular, I think how important the topic logistics has been seen to be by armed forces in the past and, and in the present. I think what we've seen in Ukraine so over the last sort of 18 months or so, particularly what happened at the outset uh, of Russia's invasion, and that's a really clear indication, not just of how important logistics are to the successful prosecution of a military campaign, but also how important it is that all of the inconveniences and the complexities and the difficulties that, that logistics makes us think about how important all of those things are taken seriously and how how important it is that every effort is put in, in place, but is every effort is put in to minimise the chances that poor logistics might 
yeah, perhaps derail an entire strategic plan. Um, so that's obviously a modern example that we can see sort of playing out uh, in real time on the other side of Europe. And I think it's inspired some of the work that I've been doing uh, recently, which has gone back to the period before the First World War, just to see how the British Army was thinking about logistics at the time. And I think that period is a really fascinating one for a couple of reasons. First off, this is a time when the British Army has to be ready to deploy to pretty much all four corners of the globe, given the sort of size, given the scale of sort of Britain's imperial commitments at the time. And I think second, it's because this is a period when for the first time in really the best part of a century since Waterloo, strategic thinkers in Britain are actually having to really seriously think about the prospect of fighting a major war on the continent of Europe against a significant power. So what I've been looking at is how those challenges, so the logistical element of those challenges, were being talked at the British Army Staff College in Camberley, which is where all of the senior leaders of the future army were being sort of trained up for the task of command. So how were they sort of grappling with these ideas during that sort of period of change, that period uh, of flux? And so hopefully there'll be an article about that uh, coming out soon, which sort of fleshes out some of those ideas in, in, in more detail. But I think it's the sort of primary conclusions that I've come to is that the British Army is taking logistics seriously before 1914, and it is really drumming into its potential commanders sort of the breadth and the variety of things that they need to be thinking about in order to get logistics right. So that's a really solid platform for the army uh, that the army is putting in place, but it is somewhat diminished by the fact that the army wasn't, as far as I can tell seriously considering the implications of a war that looks anything like the one that ends up breaking out in uh, in 1914. So they're not really looking at what would need to be done if they need to fight a sustained campaign over years uh, against a great power like Germany. They're certainly not considering the kinds of frameworks, the kind of organisations, the kinds of systems that they would need to develop if they were going to successfully manage an army that was substantially larger than the one that they had at the outbreak of the war in 1914. So there's no real engagement that I can see with the questions that arise when it comes to equipping an army that numbers in the millions rather than the sort of tens and hundreds of thousands. And as I sort of show in the book, that was a colossal undertaking and it's one that they haven't really conceptualised in any great way before 1914. So that's the first avenue that I've been exploring. Uh, the second one, is related to a different kind of challenge, but I think another one that has broader implications. Um, and that is the experience of coalition warfare as a sort of specific uh, a specific topic. Um, so I think one of the most important factors that really shapes Britain's experience in the First World War that really comes out from, from the work that I've done in the book and kind of really came out accidentally. In fact, it wasn't something that I was anticipating finding, um, but it, it certainly was one that really shone through as the book developed, is this fact that Britain fights the entire First World War as part of a coalition. So Britain's freedom of action in terms of how it fights the war is always constrained. It has to take into consideration the thoughts, the feelings, the likely sort of responses of, uh, of its allies before it's able to commit to any actions. And quite often what we see during the war is that things that British commanders wanted to do are rebuffed by their allies, and sometimes the things that they have to do are really heavily influenced by by requests, demands, 
pleas even from 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 their partners. So it's really clear from sort of looking at that kind of stuff that coalition warfare is this very difficult, very complex, very frustrating thing to do. But it's also far better to fight with partners than fight on your own. So you can share the burden, you can share the responsibilities of military operations, whether that's for material reasons, whether it's for political reasons, whether it's for both. So what I'm keen to develop, what I've started to develop over the last year or so, is to sort of try and draw together scholars who are focusing on all of these different aspects of coalition warfare and trying to create a sort of research hub for sort of sharing ideas, sharing resources, producing work, uh, sort of coalition work on on the subject. And there's been a couple of really interesting meetings on that topic so far. So anybody who's listening who, who's interested in researching coalition warfare, any aspect of it, any period of it, anything to do with the subject at all, really love to, to get for them to get in touch. Love to hear from them. Love to make some more connections uh, on that front. And we will uh, try to add a link to to that um, venue in the in the uh, notes to the to the show. So, Christopher Phillips, thank you very very much for being with us today in New Books Network with uh, discussing your your award winning uh, dissertation, Managing Armageddon, published as Civilian Specialists at War: Britain's Transport Experts and the First World War in 2020 by London University Press or University of London Press. Thank you for everybody who has listened to us today. If you haven't subscribed, do subscribe to New Books Network. And if you are a subscriber, give, please give us a thumbs up, a comment, a ranking. That helps us a lot. Until next time, thank you very much. It was Bernardo Batislas.